Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How would you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset, and that's when you can reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. Look, it's summertime. Transfer window is coming up. It's gonna get crazy. So if you ever just wanna, again, take a step back and relax, read the transfer rounds, read the gossip rumors, grab a Coors Light. It'll be perfect companion for all those transfer merry-go-rounds. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when the beer is cold. That way you always know when it's time to chill. When you need to hit reset, just open a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Now that it's finally hot in Minnesota, I'm going to be looking for an easy beer to drink, and Coors Light is perfect for that. It's lagered, it's cold filtered, and it's cold packaged. It's, again, made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies perfect for a moment to unwind and so when you want to hit reset reach for the beer that's made to chill get coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart coors brewing company golden colorado and as always celebrate all right so you're listening to this podcast right now london is blue and guess what we host our podcast on anchor.fm that's right if you're looking to host your own podcast this is the easiest free way to get started. This has got a content creation tool allows you to record and the podcast right from a phone. That's right. Don't even need a computer, but you can do it there too. They'll also help you distribute it, which is probably the most challenging part. You don't want to have to mess with that. They got you covered. You can get it right on a Spotify and Apple podcast as well as any other place podcasts are found. And you know what? You can monetize it too. Make a little cash for sharing your great content with the world. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one individual place. So you know what? Head over to your app store, download the Anchor app, or head to anchor.fm to get started if you're ready to launch your podcast and make it happen. Hi, this is Ruben off the cheek. This is William. I'm Mason Mount. You're listening to the London is Blue podcast. And welcome back, Chelsea fans, to part two of our series with Chelsea Youth talking everything about the young teams outside the first team. If you missed it, we did the dev squad first. You need to go back and listen to that. But it can be after this one. Don't don't feel like uh, they're in a, an order by any means. Just don't sleep on it. Um, joining me again this episode, myself, Brandon, Dan, and Nick coming at you. Nick, skipping over you, going right back to Dan, because Dan, we did the dev squad last time. What are we doing this time? You ate Teen football. It is time to talk about the bread and butter that our guest just loves to enjoy, loves to talk about, and that again is at Chelsea Youth on Twitter. But it is our friend Phil. And Phil, how how excited? I guess maybe you know you, you mentioned that the U18s are where you like to talk about, you know, or spend the most time getting into it. Why is that? And why are you maybe more excited? For this episode, uh, not just because it's the second one you're doing with us, but because it's about the U18s. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's because you get to see the start, the real start of the journey. Once they get into the under-18s at the age of 16, they've got the scholarship, they've, they're working towards a professional contract, and their career is likely going to be in football in some degree. So it's it's welcoming another group of boys who are growing into adults, growing into professional footballers and about to announce themselves on the world. And it's the journey through the academy that really grabs my attention as much as the destination of the first team. So, Phil, we have a, you know, a very engaged audience who 
you know, in our, in our postseason survey uh, has showed a lot of interest in, in learning more specifically about the U18s, kind of given uh, some recent rise to the to the first team from Callum and, and Reese and all these guys. So, you know, is there is there a particular kind of method to your madness and how you take in this team or how you continue to learn and grow uh, your knowledge about the team so that, you know, we might be able to take a couple of notes and, and grow ourselves this season? Yeah, uh, I think it's about learning from why things haven't happened as much as why things do happen. So everyone watches the Youth Cup runs and they fall in love with a certain player and think, OK, he's a nailed on first team player. Why doesn't that happen? Is it because the player doesn't progress as well as he might have? Is it because the pathway isn't there? Is it just because he was a fantastic 17-year-old footballer and happened to peak there? There are there are so many unknowns at that age. And the average age of a Premier League debutant from academy football now is somewhere like 22 years of age. So we're talking five or six years worth of development. So it's perfectly fine to be encouraged and excited about what you see from these guys. But they're at the start of their journey. There's There's a lot that can happen to them as... They grow off the pitch as much as on the pitch. What would you say is the biggest first hurdle going into the U18s that, you know, maybe a, a player, you know, in the Dev Squad episode, we talked about maybe some of the pace of getting accustomed to it is the challenge for a Dev Squad into the first team and the expectations there. But from a player who's progressing uh, from U14, U16, uh, into U18, what's their first initial challenge? Is it, again, pace or is there something new there? It's predominantly about adapting to life as a full-time footballer. The Elite Player Performance Plan, which is the sort of centralised document that governs youth football in England that's been in effect since 2013, gave clubs the ability to take control of the education of their players. So some clubs will have an arrangement with a school in local proximity. Some will take it on site. Chelsea, for example, have an association with Glynn School, which is a few miles away from the training ground. They will have teachers come to the training ground and do four or five hours a day of schoolwork for players up from the age of 14, 15, 16, um, split with time on the training pitch. So essentially for those guys, they become full-time footballers or full-time at the training ground from the age of 15 but not everybody does that either they're not offered the opportunity to by the club or the family and the club are happy with their current school arrangements so at that point they do what's called the day release program they'll come to the training ground one or two days a week out of their school and then return so a bunch of those guys when they sign their scholarships and spend full-time life at the club that's the adaptation they have to do they move away from home they move in with a, a Diggs family or a villa as it is in canada or whatever it is in your local terminology they live with a foster family usually along with another teammate they get their own independence but they move away from home at 16 which is uncommon for for most people people go away to college or university at 18 in most walks of life these guys are doing it a couple of years earlier and all the while have to continue developing as a footballer it's the off the pitch stuff that really affects how how sort of how, how the journey goes from that point of view you know i think that one of the things that we we talked about um a little bit before we jumped live was kind of just the i would say like the per the perspective of the academy right or how it's viewed as an asset or resource to the club in the past, there's been a lot of frustration because that walk across the road has seemed impassable almost, just not something that anyone really did, let alone consistency. We've already seen photos, clips, Frank's there, Jody's there, 
Christensen's there, Aspie's there, all the, you know, a bunch of first team players, Mount's there, as well as the coaching staff. What, I guess, you know, we, can you, I'm struggling to even like put it into words, like what the difference is from the last, and I don't know, five, six, 10, 12, whatever number of years it's been to overnight with Frank and Jody, you know, coming in. What's that been like? I think the the best word is um, from our friend Liam Toomey, who wrote about it in The Athletic this morning. He said the word that keeps coming back to him from people he speaks to is galvanized. Everyone in the academy building suddenly knows that their work is appreciated that little bit more on the other side of the road with people they know they're friends with and they've worked with for several years. Someone like Joe Edwards, who's now on the coaching staff, has been involved with the academy in some way for the best part of 25 years now. So... Having them come to watch matches, having them interact with the staff on a regular basis, being able to be on first name terms with the academy players, it just lifts everybody's spirits and makes them think that the work that they're doing is that little bit more likely to pay dividends. I think, you know, just just hearing it that way and, you know, I love that you talked about Liam um, because uh, we're huge fans of him and have read his articles on The Athletic as well. You know, it, it, it just it helps because I think that maybe a lot of us international fans just haven't been there um, when the Academy maybe had a bigger role. We've been here in the era where we go and buy continental superstars and players and we are able to rest our hat on JT being there. Right. But, you know, like I said, I think it's just a good perspective to always ask is, you know, you've mentioned you've been a chan- fan since birth of Chelsea. Um it's just, it's just, I think it's so important to get that perspective versus kind of where we're coming from. Yeah, and I, I don't necessarily believe that you can only have the culture of Chelsea running through it through academy graduates. We were blessed with one of the finest generations of footballers to come through the, uh, the Stamford Bridge doors in, in its history. We had Drogba, we had Balak, we had Essien, we had any number of players, Ricardo Carvalho, Ashley Cole. None of those came through the academy, but they all understood what it was to be Chelsea. If you go back and speak to any of them, you'd probably find that John Terry was the one setting the example, telling them what Chelsea meant to be Chelsea. And when he decided to leave or wasn't offered a new contract, I think a part of the heart of the club disappeared with it. And maybe we're trying to, we're finally finding a little bit more of that back with Frank coming back to the club, with the academy graduates on Elman off the pitch. And the results will come in time. But it's it's about finding a little bit more of what Chelsea is again. It, it, we mentioned that. I think we, we talk about that as fans and supporters often is what it means to be Chelsea. When these U18s, U, U15s, you know, get that type of education around like what the Chelsea DNA is, how, how does that get quantified to them? How is that showcased to them so that when they do make that transition from U18 to U23, U23 to first team, that they really have that level of, of understanding or what, what is that actual is there a way to quantify that or to talk about it you know to to actually give it a little bit more of just a, a definition it's, it's always a hard one to quantify something as abstract as that but i think maybe it's the sort of the pride of playing for chelsea what wearing that shirt and wearing that badge means not to you necessarily but to the people who pay money to come to the matches the people that are investing their time in you People get hung up on whether so-and-so is a Chelsea fan or isn't a Chelsea fan. Mason Mount grew up a Portsmouth fan, but is Chelsea because he's been there since the age of six. He feels a certain level of pride and of care in what he does for Chelsea. 
And that message passes its way through the academy from Neil Bath on downwards because of the very deliberate strategy of surrounding the team and the coaching staff with players who've been in the academy or have been through the academy, made the first team journey and returned to pass on their wisdom. So, you know, I think another one of those structural changes and, and to kind of wrap on this is the fact that Chelsea is not only kind of you know, reimagining what the, the pathway is to the first team, but they're also... I think doing a better and, and maybe more clever job of exposing um, the masses to these matches. So whether it's to the fist stand app or or through um, you know Facebook live streams or, or whatever, there, there seems to be more uh, free access to to see these guys play, especially if, if we're not sitting next to you in the uh, in the stadium. So uh, could you maybe talk a little bit about that and how how that exposure could help grow the profile of of the U18s? It's a little bit of a double-edged sword because more exposure leads to perhaps a little bit more hype, a little bit more mm-hmm. misunderstood hype because people are watching it as a match in isolation without realizing that these are 16 and 17 year olds who aren't the 1% of of the 1% who go on and be superstars at that age. But I think a lot of clubs can do more to bring their fans closer to that sort of thing. If it's not the under 18s, then you can definitely show regular under 23 football. Um, it certainly hasn't harmed Manchester United over the 25 years or whatever that they've had MUTV. They regularly show their under 18s of a Saturday morning. Um, they've been the leader in English youth development for some 50 to 60 years now. Um, and as long as you surround the coverage with education, I think it can only really be a net positive, but you have to, you can't just leave it out there in isolation and have people run wild with various um, opinions and hot takes. It's uh, exactly the same reason, and we've talked about uh, American football before we started recording. It's the exact same reason we don't see uh, JV or high school uh, football matches broadcast on ESPN with a high level of regularity, is that uh, (laughs) uh, there has to be some level of tempering of the the expectation. But as we maybe pivot a little bit here and talk about the setup of the U18 squad this season, they also have a new coach. So Ed Brand joins as the new U18 head coach. So he's formerly a youth, uh, youth team captain as a player. Uh, he's 32-year-old. He's been coaching in our academy for 10 years. And so most recently, he was the assistant uh, to Edwards with the development squad last season. And he also worked with Morris during the two-year period in which the team won every competition they entered, which is uh, a quite, a, quite a run. So what, what should we know about brand beyond maybe just the the, the bio that uh, Chelsea puts on their website um yeah he's been an assistant more than he's been a lead he was he we go back five or six years he was the under 12s head coach with James Simmons as his assistant and now they're both in the same positions with the under 18s but people will mostly know Ed for being Jody's assistant and Joe's assistant where amongst many other things he's often tasked with um, opposition analysis and working out how to play against the team's upcoming that that's a very high level of responsibility a lot of the coaching strategy at the club is collaborative the assistants are entrusted with a lot of important stuff on day-to-day basis so when they get to be the lead they're they're well prepared for what they have to do the responsibility falls on them a little bit more but he's got James Simmons alongside him James was the head coach of the under 16s last season so the dozen first year scholars that have now joined the squad James knows a little bit more about those than Ed Um, but yeah 
it's it's an opportunity for Ed to carry on developing his career. He deserves the opportunity of being a head coach in his own right. And I think he started the season very well. And, and how consistent has that, since you've been watching the, the academy, how consistent has been the promotion of the coach along with the aging up of the players? Uh, it seems like that adds a high level of continuity and maybe it helps to, again, be that elevator versus being the stairs in terms of helping with the, the players progression as well yeah it's certainly become a little bit more prevalent in the last few years i think jody did it i think joe may have done it before him and even ad vivash back before that had worked with the younger age groups it's it's a level of familiarity that the players are immediately comfortable with the coach and he's particular styles or idiosyncrasies or anything that stands out about them the players are really familiar with it it's a mutually beneficial relationship and it's also in part because Neil Bath's coaching, I wouldn't say coaching mantra, but start mantra with the staff is to encourage them to progress just as much as the players. Take them up the, the rungs of the UEFA coaching badges up to UEFA Pro. Take them from under 18s to under 23s and then to the first team coaching staff, which is something we saw a lot under Jose Mourinho. He took on uh, Steve Clark as his first assistant way back in 2004. We had the likes of Chris Jones and Glenn Driscoll become fitness coaches and physios over there. Eva Carnero went from the under 18 through the system and became the first team doctor. And it dried up a little bit in recent years, but we've had an explosion this summer and we've got seven or eight on the first team staff now. You know, it's, it's probably on purpose, but every time you read a bio of a new Chelsea coach, like, Yep. Um, let's see. They've been coaching for the last 10 years in the academy at all levels. Uh, oh, by the way, they were a schoolboy playing at Chelsea, <laughs> you know, made appearances. <laughs> and it's just great. You know, like I said, it, we haven't always heard about it, but the club are really making an effort to to say, hey, here's, here's our new staff and here's where they've been through Chelsea. Here's their journey. And it's just so, so great to, to hear and to see um, because you know, especially as international fans, we had no idea, right? The the riches and the luxuries that Chelsea have had, especially with a lot of these, you know, coaching staff and players over the years. So um, again, just a, me shouting out the club for doing that. So let's go yeah. ahead and, and look into last season's performance. So as the, we are in the South Division, okay, which puts us uh, in a league of 12 teams. And here are the final spots from last year. So on top, Arsenal on 60 points, then Tottenham, then Chelsea. So literally the worst kind of order we could go (laughs) so far. Um, Chelsea were on 44 points, so 16 behind league leaders, table toppers. Uh, Then you've got Southampton, Brighton, Villa, Leicester, West Ham, Fulham, Reading, Swansea, and Norwich. So um, again, kind of the exact same follow-up question as last time, Phil. Uh, what are your thoughts? To me, this seems like a little bit of an underachieving. I'm a casual fan. Just pay attention to the headlines. Um, what is your expert opinion and kind of what was your breakdown of maybe why it was good or bad? Yeah, it's, it's obviously going to look a, a little bit of a disappointment because Chelsea had won this South League uh, for the previous four seasons and the previous two, they'd won the national title. So the winner of the South plays the winner of the North in a title playoff. They beat Manchester United in the final of the previous year, came into it as defending champions and finished 16 points short of Arsenal, who were eventual runners-up to Derby County. Um so it's you look at the table Chelsea lost four matches two of those were to Tottenham one was to Arsenal one was to Brighton in any ordinary season they might have been a little bit more competitive the 
Arsenal team in particular were a powerhouse of a team. They only dropped six points in the league all season. They averaged four goals a match. And it all comes back to age. So we touched upon a little bit earlier about the challenges some players face when they move into under-18 football because they have to learn about going full-time. The majority of players from last year's intake of first-year scholars were doing that. There were only one or two of them who'd been through the school system at Cobham and had been essentially full-time for a year or two beforehand. So they came in with a little bit more learning to do than your average youth teamer does now. And they were having to compete against an Arsenal and a Tottenham squad that were loaded with talent in their second year. So they were 17 to turn 18 later in the season. Um, you look at the numbers. Chelsea used 20% more first-year players in the league average over the entire season. Arsenal won the division with exactly 50% of their playing time minutes going to their second year's players and Tottenham had 65%. So we're talking maybe a year or two of age difference, but in academy football, that age difference, it it shows a lot more. In the senior game, you, you, you can be a 20-year-old coming up against a 30-year-old, but the baseline talent in senior football is a lot higher than the baseline talent in academy football. You can be a guy in academy football who's not going to have a playing career coming up against someone like Callum Hudson-Odoi, who will be playing for England within two years. And it's a little bit more pronounced. So they were battling off the pitch and then encountering significant challenges on it. So, I mean, when you look at the table, um, you know, Chelsea were, were quite a bit off the mark. Um, what do you think, it, you know, if anything... Chelsea need to break their way this year to to kind of be in the running for a title um, or is that Arsenal team still just too too stacked um, for for the competition no you see that's the thing that Arsenal team have now graduated they're off into under 23 football quite a few of them are on the verges or have made first team debuts in the Europa League last season and the same with Tottenham that's played out already because in the 10 matches combined that those two clubs have had this season they've only won three matches Whereas Chelsea have won four and drawn one of their five so far. They're joint top with Brighton, who they drew with yesterday as we record this, and with Fulham, who have started the season exceptionally well themselves. So already Chelsea have an advantage over Arsenal and Tottenham of a few points. That's going to sort of play itself out. They still have to play each other home and away. But as far as I'm concerned, this particular group of Chelsea players that have come into the squad this year to supplement those who played last year are as good as there are in the country and they should be seen as favourites to reclaim the Southern League title this season. Well, let's dive into that current squad or that current youth team. So we'll run down the list. We've got goalkeepers. We have uh, Jake Askew. We've got Lucas uh, Bergstrom. We have Ethan Wadi. We go to defenders. Uh, quite a bunch here. Uh, Jordan Aina, Josh Brooking, James Clark, Levi Colwell. We have uh, Pierre Amuel. Uh, Iqua El Imbi, we have Bashir Humphreys, Valentino Leva Ramento, we have Sam McCleanland, we have Dinel Simu, Charlie Wiggett, midfielders Lewis Bate, Ben Elliott, Joe Haig, we have Henry Lawrence, Miles Peart Harris, we've got Dion uh, Ronchini, we have Xavier Simmons, and then forwards we have uh, Tierno Balo, we have Armando Broja, 
Marcel Lewis, and George Noon. Yeah, and 12 of those are the new first-year scholars who've come in, um, having really only experienced success in the last few years. So James Simmons was their manager at under-15 and under-16 level, and is now their assistant manager. As under-15s, they had uh, they secured a domestic treble, they won an international tournament, the Floodlit Cups regional southern stage, and then the Floodlit Cups national final against Aston Villa. Then as under-16s last year, they won the Premier League Under-16 Cup, which is probably the most prestigious competition at that age group domestically. They played Arsenal in the final of that, away from home. They won 5-2. They were dominant from start to finish. They've got England internationals uh, under-16, under-17 age levels, wherever you look. And they've come in and they've looked straight at home, uh, under-18 level. So, uh, you know, we're thinking about players specifically. I mean, Armando Brogia was a guy that we, you know, Mentioned in the U23 episode um, as a as a guy who uh, has has had to kind of you know due to depth issues or due to injuries kind of move up to the U23s and play a couple of games. Um, he started the season with six goals and five matches, and then you know kind of made it through some tough times last season, um, but you know enjoyed a, a really strong summer uh, with Albania at the U19 and U21 level. So. Uh, talk to us a little bit about his game and, and what we might expect from him this season. Yeah, he's a really well-built, prototypical number nine, big, tall center forward. And it didn't really work out for him last season. He played a little bit too often on the right of the attack, whether it was a 4-3-3 or a 3-4-3 or whatever designation you want to call it. He was a little bit wide. He only scored twice. And George Nunn, who was a fellow first year, came down from Crew Alexandra. He scored nine goals and tended to be the preferred centre forward in the team. And we went into sort of the end of season internationals in May and June and Armando was playing for Albania. Scored a, a few goals for the under-19s and got an immediate promotion up to the under-21s for a doubleheader against Wales. He scored three goals in those two matches and came back into pre-season at Chelsea with a bit of form and a bit of confidence behind him. And there's growing up off the pitch to do as well. He's gone through a first full season of being a full-time footballer. He's come into the pre-season this year, scored goals while playing up with the under-23s, comes back down, plays against Leeds in pre-season, scores a hat-trick, and then six goals in five matches at the start of the season proper. He's been a menace to play against. He's grown up. He un- He's still offside way too often, um, which is something that you can see Ed Brand frustrated about on a weekly basis but he's learning he's getting the opportunity at under 23 level he leads the team as much for his work rate as he does for his goals and it's it's that sort of understanding that some players might not hit their stride until their second year rather than expecting them to be superstars as soon as they come into the under 18 team what what percentage of this team do you feel like will make some appearance just due to to squad depth in the U23s this season and how how important is that is that being balanced with in that first year scholarship with um you know really kind of establishing a comfort as that full-time footballer Uh, we've already seen Brozier and Ballo Marcel Lewis and Henry Lawrence all play up at that level this season Henry scored against Brighton on Friday night at Stamford Bridge and they're the the more experienced second years of this group who've already stepped up. The likes of Sam McClelland and Danelle Simeu and Pierre Equa will probably follow later in the season. Pierre actually played a couple of matches last season, but those were more born out of circumstance and players who were unavailable due to other commitments. What tends to happen with these guys as they come to the end of their two years in the youth team is they'll start to be slowly drip-fed into the under-23s and 
expose them a little bit more towards the end of that season so that they can come in for the new season as under-19s ready to be full-time contributors there. Um, but also we shouldn't forget that Tino Andrewin and Ian Matson are technically second years by age group and have already graduated onto much bigger things. So another couple names I think we want to pull out are Dion and Lewis. So I don't want to steal you know, your thunder from what you put in here, but it definitely sounds like in the early part of the season, um, they've really shown themselves to be to be exciting players. They have. Um, it's hard to sort of pick out two or three of them because they've all come in and for the most part slotted in seamlessly as if they've played 10, 20, 30 matches at this level. But Lewis in particular, he got six or seven matches last season playing up as a schoolboy. He he runs the show from sort of defensive midfield. He's small. He's a little bit stocky. He's left-footed. He's a always on the move. He's a metronome. He'll he'll pick up the ball. He'll spread it. He'll switch the play. There's a little bit of George McEachern to him, but with more aggression. I think if long-term followers of the youth team remember Connor Clifford from the sort of 2007 2008 time, there are some stylistic similarities to him. Only Lewis is left-footed. He's already contributed a few goals and assists. He's He's a real leader and wants to have the responsibility on his shoulders. And Dion is, he's a little bit like Tarek Lamptey in that he's most at home playing somewhere along the right wing and bombing up and down, taking people out of the game with, with his sheer pace. But at Brighton yesterday, before he went off injured at half time, he was playing as a, a sort of a number 10 tucked in in the 3 4 3 because his ability to operate in tight spaces and to to provide creativity through give and go or being able to beat a man 1v1 seems to be more effective in central areas right now, especially because the team's also got Valentino Livramento to play on the right. So if you can have both of these players in the team at the same time, you can reap the rewards of having two high-level academy players on the pitch at the same time. So how how is Brand typically set up, like formation and you know terms of uh, getting the best out of the squad that he has? Like, What has his kind of formation or kind of uh, tactical you know instructions been to the team uh this season it's been pretty much a 3-4-3 as the first team used against wolves this weekend which will be heavy use of wing backs two sort of attacking midfielders behind a central striker or just alongside them they're very versatile they're very fluid this particular group have played the that way 3-4-3 for the last couple of years more than anything else i'd say that brand and the coaching staff are adaptable to what they have. This squad is perfectly suited to playing in a 3-4-3. But if they didn't have the options to, then they wouldn't. They started preseason playing with a back four. So they'll, they'll, they'll adjust as as required. But when everybody's available, there's no reason not to use wing backs right now. Is there a, a really quick, is there a defender that you're looking at, um, either a wing back or, or someone who would slot into a back three that you know, you're thinking could make a huge huge jump outside of who we've talked about already um probably valentino livramento which is a very italian name for a south london born <laughs> boy but yes i believe he has italian family he um yeah he's nominally a right wing back can play on the left wing back has played on the right side of a back three uh more to the degree that aspilicueta has done it than a reese james because he's not as physically developed as reese is he's got the same sort of build as asp he's got the same metronomic energy up and down the right wing takes the responsibility on his shoulders to play to lead the team he played uh, in the UEFA Youth League last season as a schoolboy admittedly just in a second leg of a match that Chelsea had won comfortably in the first leg but 
he's he's ready to lead uh, to be a, a key player in the youth cup run this season. And I'm not going to go as far as saying he'll play in the first team in X number of years, but he's definitely a prospect to keep an eye on. That that is good to know. Uh, another name that we didn't kind of put down here, but you know, I'm interested to hear your thoughts is just uh, Marcel Lewis is another one that I think has uh, popped across uh, your uh, your tweets occasionally, and I'm wondering. Uh, how would you assess, uh, you know, his kind of contributions to the team so far, and what you see for him? Yeah, I think he's fairly understated because he doesn't score a great amount of goals, and he doesn't always end up with the highest number of assists. But he's always there, involved in something. I made the point on Friday night against Brighton that despite scoring a goal, he his defensive work was tremendous. He was working from the number ten position, but he'd be back on the edge of his own box, winning tackles, just winning 50-50 duels, the little things that keep you in possession and keep the play ticking over. And he, he his work rate sets the tone for everything else. He's not uh, a shouty leader. He's not someone who's going to lead with authority. But there were times last season when he was playing with none and with Tiano Ballo as part of a front three where their work rate off the ball caused teams so many problems. And he'll come along. He's, again... 5'8", maybe 5'7", he's not the biggest, very, very adept technically, very good free kick taker, but he's rounding out his game really impressively right now. Okay, well, how about we go ahead and jump into the, like I said, young, but, you know, current season so far. Uh, Again, South Conference, um, we've got uh, five matches played as well. So the table looks Fulham on top with 13 points. They are tied with Brighton and Chelsea. So that is the top three all tied on 13 points. Chelsea, as with the other teams, have four wins, one draw, no losses, and Chelsea are plus four goal difference. Then in fourth, you've got West Ham, then Villa, then Tottenham, then Reading, Leicester, Arsenal, Swansea, Southampton, Norwich. This just goes to show you, Phil, as you said, Arsenal were so dominant last season. They were Head and shoulders above the rest. I think their goal difference, and I didn't touch on this, blew me away, plus 63, okay? Um, That's a hell of a lot of goals and not a lot of matches. Uh, And look, now they're in ninth out of 12. And so it's great to see Chelsea in third, essentially tied on top of the table. It is, and it comes with the asterisk that we've only played five matches out of 22, but that is a quarter of the season. So Arsenal have transitioned off to a whole new bunch of players that have come into the team. They're they're less experienced and they might be stronger again next season. Chelsea have got the likes of Brogia, likes of Marcel Lewis, likes of Pierre Equa, who've had a year in the team, but it's, it's been mostly the first years who've come into the team and really led by example. They probably had a slightly harder start by comparison to Fulham and Brighton, but that's not to discredit either of those teams. Brighton looked a very, very good team when they hosted Chelsea yesterday morning. They were, good for the point that they earned in the end and they probably should have won late on. Um, Chelsea's goal difference is a little bit shy right now because of the the way they started the season. They've had a harder fixture list. Uh, I'd, I'd be surprised if they didn't improve that in the in the weeks and months to come. When you look at the... Um the maybe some of the the challenges or the teams that will maybe give us a little bit of a a headache you know obviously the table is a little different in uh you know pl2 or with the u18s you know we see teams like reading on this list um swansea or not maybe premier league teams currently fulham Uh, who, who looks to be maybe the most challenging competition that we're gonna face this season and is there any um 
any maybe surprise team that we would kind of have to have to worry about that's really going to challenge us on our way to try to try to win the win it all I think Brighton and Fulham could each emerge as the surprise team Brighton probably more so because they don't have a, a great track history in youth development that people would be surprised to learn that they've got a very very impressive academy they've been making great strides their under 16s last season were um, national semi-finalists and they've come into this team and led them to a pretty good start they've got an expansive recruitment program across Europe and it brings in players that supplement that Fulham have always been really good at youth level um, whether their best players have been taken or not Harvey Elliott would have been part of this team and was part of this team before he went to Liverpool I'd be surprised if over the course of the season Arsenal and Tottenham didn't get get it together enough to to challenge for top three positions because ultimately the size and recruitment power of the, the the big three down south will always play out but Fulham and Brighton have definitely got it in them to make life hard for Chelsea yeah I, I mean I think on that note when we kind of think about season predictions how do you think you know you kind of already alluded to this but how do you think the the team will finish in the division and then will they will they move on um, to to win any silverware uh, kind of beyond the, the south division I'm very bullish on the chances of this team to to win the southern league title at the very least I think that they've got an array of options. Whatever your preferred type of player is, this team has it. They've got options in depth. They can solve problems. They've got different formations, tactical approaches. They'll get the job done. And I think they'll go well in the Youth Cup again. Um, Obviously, you can get the luck of the draw like we did last season. Drew Manchester United in the third round. Lost by the odd goal in seven to a world-class youngster in Mason Greenwood. You can never quite guarantee that you're going to get a smooth path to the final, but I'd be surprised if they weren't in the mix for silverware again. Uh, it looks like the north section is already being dominated by Manchester City. They're scoring three, four, five goals a match. They've got a very good generation of players coming back again, so we could get to next April and May and have a bit of a renewal of acquaintances with them. At, at this level, do you feel like this? You know, when you look at you know the U18 teams and the academies you know if you were kind of to go and maybe rank them um you know i i feel like maybe without you know w- without bias uh you might be able to say chelsea won um but who are you know maybe if you were to rank them maybe top three top five where do you kind of gauge the the level of a u18 squad across these um these premier league sides for the most part chelsea are as good as anybody it can fluctuate year by year in terms of playing talent but in terms of strength of academy the clubs are mostly being audited again over the coming season so that it can be recategorized where necessary but Chelsea have always been in the top cluster of teams with Arsenal with Manchester City Manchester United Liverpool Tottenham those are the leading academies just because of the investment they're able to put in Um, from any year to year you'd expect those teams to be up at the top which is why it was really impressive that Derby County managed to win the national title last season overcoming some of the powerhouses in the north and then winning against that dominant Arsenal team quite comprehensively in the final. Um, year on year, Chelsea are going to be up there. They're going to produce some of the best players around and that's not going to change in the near future. A, a quick follow would be, do you see the gap, you know, because Chelsea have been uh, pretty dominant for, for quite some time. Do you see that gap closing um, now or is it is it still a little ways to go? In the south, it's probably more pronounced between Arsenal, Tottenham and Chelsea and everybody else. It's hard for any team to close that gap particularly. And it's similar in the North. You'll have the two Manchester clubs, Liverpool and Everton, they'll always do well. And 
over the course of the last six years, the all played table shows that out that these teams will always win the majority of their 22 league matches and they'll be in the business end of the youth cup. It's been the last time a team from outside of those six teams won the youth cup was when Norwich beat Chelsea back in 2013. It's, it's once in a generation where that happens. So, you know, in, in really tying all these pieces together, I think the Academy probably has a couple of roles for the club, obviously to produce talent for the first team. But I mean, there's also the side of the revenue, right? Of, hey, they're not good enough for Chelsea, but it doesn't mean they're not good enough overall, right? And so I guess I'm always interested in kind of, I guess I mentioned your perspective on, I guess, has this perspective changed over the years or maybe one has been more important than the other? Um, and just kind of how it all fits into how the club operates, you know, almost from like the 30,000 foot view. If we step out and say, all right, the club is this huge entity. There's all these moving parts. How does Academy fit into like the big picture for Chelsea? As a bit of a traditionalist, I'd always say that the Academy should be producing players for the first team, which is what it's doing this season. But it clearly hasn't done that often enough over the years. So you make of it what you can. If you're producing talented players who might not be of a Chelsea standard, whatever the, the bar is for entry on any given season, then if you can turn a profit on them, the work isn't going to waste. There, Every penny helps with financial fair play. And while Michael Emanalo hasn't been at the club for the last three years, it was sort of his drive that expanded the, the loan army operation, which is where the, the big money's made from that. The, the academy developed players who go out on loan, you'll make a little bit off them in terms of loan fee and wage contributions and then a fee if they, if they graduate and they, at a different level to Chelsea's first team. But I tend to think that the players that you're developing for the club should be for the club. All right. And then obviously, I know there's some requirements um, and there are some, um, you know, I guess like FA is very involved in these academies as far as like how their development, the standards, the structure and things like that. Um, so obviously it's good to see, but I know that a lot of teams kind of come up and down outside the table. I guess this is just for me. Is it, is it always Premier League teams in their academies or are there times where our academies will actually play a championship team because their academy is so much better in comparison than maybe their first team? Yeah, the categorization of academies is done... Um, as part of an audit that looks at the investment, the scholarly education, the track record of developing players and producing them from the club. There's five or six different categories that they go through. And if you fall into the top 24 as it is, then you get to play alongside the elite academies in the country. So you see that the likes of Reading and Swansea are in the southern section at the minute, Derby County are in the northern section. There's The majority of the Category 1 academies are Premier League clubs, but there are championship clubs in there. There are Premier League clubs who play at Category 2 level, which they play against other championship and League 1 academies. It's, it's done in such a way that you can have a club like Reading, who have a, a great track record of youth in uh, youth development in recent years but the first team fortunes haven't quite been able to keep them in the premier league it allows them to still develop their players at the highest possible level okay we're going to make a quick transition back into predictions here um who is likely of this of this group of of talented youngsters to be the top goal scorer for the season well since armando broge has already got six goals he's got quite a head start <laughs> on anybody else it should be him uh if he 
moves on at sort of mid-season and starts to play more regularly for the development squad, then someone like George Nunn will have an opportunity to lead the line like he did last year. He scored nine goals. He looked pretty good last season. There's a bit of a Patrick Bamford vibe about him. He's a left-footed striker. He's blonde. So you've got the visual similarities, but they move in a similar way. They've got the same sort of demeanour. Um, he's got goals in him. So if he gets the opportunity to lead the line more regularly, then he could catch up. And and who do you think is most likely to be, uh, again, it might be half seasons at the U18 level, but the uh, maybe the first half player of the season and maybe the whole player of the season, given the, the mobility between squads at the uh, young levels? It would probably be a first year who spends the entire season with the squad who's going to win the award. They have The Premier League has a, a Scholar of the Year award for every club. Henry Lawrence won that last year. That's largely due to the, the work they do off the pitch as well as on the pitch. And so without the exposure to knowing how they're getting on on that side of it, we can only focus on the playing side. Um, I, I like Lewis Bates' chances. He's a real influence in the team. He started well. He'll be there from start to finish so like i said i think this has just been in summation really great perspective on a lot of these different things but i do want to go ahead and and just wrap this up so uh again phil this two-parter that we've done on the u18 team right now the dev squad slash lone army you know in the other episode it has been fantastic so again if you're not following at chelsea youth do it um and, you know, give them a shout. Tell them how much you enjoyed it. But, again, just thank you for the time and sharing this. Uh, our strategy this year has been much more – we want to be much more comprehensive of the club and not just focus on the first team. So we did a women's preview, and now we're doing the youth stuff with you. And so, again, just thank you because there are so many fans outside of England that are just unfamiliar with this stuff. Uh, the level of knowledge you bring to it is fantastic. Thank you guys for having me on. It's obviously the first time I've been on a podcast with anybody. I'm sure it won't be the last, and I'm sure I'll be back with you guys at some point throughout the season. Would love to get updates throughout the season, <laughs> if at all possible. Um, Nick and Dan, I'll each allow you one kind of final <laughs> note or thank you as well. So, Nick, uh, yeah, you're right. You are now Professor Phil to me. Um, <laughs> I think... Uh, it's just been awesome, uh, you know, it, the, the perspective of someone who goes week in and week out is always welcome on this show and, and, you know, something that, you know, again, we're just, we're growing in our fandom, not of just, you know, the first team, which we feel pretty well versed in at this point, but uh, for the women's team and the youth team, and, and this is awesome perspective so that we can, uh, can do that. So just wanted to to shout you out there, Professor. Thanks. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I'm in a fairly privileged position to be able to to see what other people can't or they don't have the opportunity. So it's predominantly been the Twitter account, but if I can help bring a little bit more exposure to things and offer a bit more insight, then I'm more than glad to. Well, we, we are very fortunate for you passing your knowledge to us and in turn giving it back to the larger Chelsea community. I think that, you know, the, it's been very great to see this season the excitement around a Tammy, a Mason, a Reese, and to see how that's going to continue to evolve throughout this season with the Carabao Cup matches and what this U23 team can do, what this U18 team can do, and how this Chelsea DNA is just it's you know pumping through the blood of every one of these players and these coaches and i i, I don't think i can ima- i can remember a more exciting moment maybe outside of winning the champions league in in modern chelsea history than than i do right now yeah everyone's got their own reasons for excitement around the first team but this is this is definitely the 
the best I felt about things in years. Awesome. Love it. Well, again, thank you so much. Uh, Chelsea fans, go give them some love. Uh, but we'll, we will be back with a ton more content. So until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.